I'm going to be reading from Matthew 18. Um, if you would stand, if you look for that, Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and stood him in their midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I to say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to seek come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns, if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, I again just thank you for giving us your word, and in this, Lord, we know you, and we know your ways, and I ask God that you would just so work in us that we, as we have commemorated Christ's death on our behalf, and as we received of him, that we would now, God, receive your teaching ministry to us, that we would listen, God, from our hearts, from our souls, our spirits, and hear your voice, and give our amen, God, to all that you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, chapter 18 here of Matthew is a very, very full chapter. It could easily be three sermons, um, and I may yet stretch it out to that. Um, but we know that it stands as a unit. Because in the very first verse it says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus. And then in chapter 19, verse 1, and it came about that when Jesus had finished these words. So chapter 18 is a standalone unit. And what um, is the occasion for it is the disciples want to know who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now you recall in chapter 17 it started with the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus invited up onto that mountain Peter and James and John. So you kind of wonder when that question was asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, if maybe Peter, James, and John were kind of just puffing their chest out a little bit and going, well, obviously, you know, we got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and, 
you know, there's something special about us. And maybe they were looking around at each other, and um, what they heard was not what they expected. And Jesus looks at them, probably looked at all 12 men. I wonder if he didn't smile a little bit. And he goes, bring me that little child over there. And the little child walks up, and Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven. And the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is one who is like this child. That would have been shocking for these men because grown men did not have as an ambition to be like children. Even Paul says, I've put put behind me the childish things. But there's a difference between being childish and being childlike. And if being childlike is so huge, so monumental, that you cannot even enter heaven unless you are like a child, and your position in heaven is totally dependent on how much like a child you are, then I think it's pretty important to know what a child, what being childlike is. And I think it stands to reason, this is how I take this chapter, that the entire chapter answers the question of what does it look like to be childlike? Because not everything about children is good. Um, I, I, um, I like that one line in that Nemo, Finding Nemo movie where the, um, all the um, seagulls are crying out, mine, 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 mine. And it reminds me of my grandchildren sometimes. And it is, you know, they don't, they're not always great at sharing. And it's mine, 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 it's mine, that's mine. He's got mine, she's got mine. And, and you go, goodness gracious. Not everything about children is good. I like studying children, um, and, um, and I've learned that there is this magical short period of time in most children's life when they will do whatever you suggest. I love that period of time. <laughs> With my nephew one time, we were all sitting at my mom and dad's table. There were 10 or 12 of us there, and I was sitting at one corner, and my one of my brothers was sitting at the opposite corner at the far end of the table, and I called his son over to me, and I said, I want you to crawl under the table to your dad and bite him on the back of the leg as hard as you can. <laughs> okay. And he took off, and a few seconds later, he's back, and he says, now, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and I said, your daddy, bite him on the leg as hard as you can. And it was a beautiful moment. (laughs) Just out of nowhere, my brother, yeah! He's just screaming. I was so pleased with my nephew. And the great thing is, he didn't stop doing that. (laughs) My brother was standing out on the front porch just with his hands on his hips, looking across the street. And the little boy came up and bit him on the back of the leg again. And he said, Charlie, I almost kicked him across the street. You've got to undo what you've done. But one of the best things I suggested to him, he was no longer in diapers, and he was wearing his little trainer pants. Um, and I said to him, you know, whenever it's just you and, your, and you and your dad in your dad's truck, you can just fill up your underwear. Because really, and I said, really? And he did. 
And for a long time after that, I was getting dirty diapers in my truck. <laughs> so I, you know, again, not everything about being childlike are things that are good. So what is it that Jesus is after? And I looked at, you know, I've taught this passage at school for quite a few years, um, and, and yet I've been looking at it with fresh eyes, and, and I've looked at a, at a lot of different commentaries, and, and I'm happy that, that so many of the commentaries are saying, as I've been saying for years, that the entire chapter is about humility, about being like children. And not just the first introduction part here, but the entire chapter. Wearsby, not so much. He says the first part here is about um, humility, and then the next part, beginning in verse 15, is about honesty, and then the last part, beginning in verse 21, is about forgiveness. But I don't think it's so disjointed. It certainly talks about honesty, talks about forgiveness, but it's really the, the controlling theme here is being like children, and the, and the specific aspect of childlikeness is humility. But again, what does that humility look like? That's what I think Jesus is wanting to tell us in this chapter. So he says again, Truly I say to you, in verse 3, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I hope that we all understand that it is impossible to become a Christian without humbling yourself and acknowledging your desperate need for forgiveness and that you are without eternal life and that Jesus is eternal life. And that the only way to have what you're missing is to place your faith in him. I read that 90% of those who place their faith in Christ, 90% of Christians, received Christ before they were 18. Before they were 18. Isn't that interesting? So the older we get, the more proud we become. The less childlike we become. It is typically not difficult to lead children to Christ. And it's not because they're gullible, it's because they're humble. They acknowledge their need, they acknowledge that they cannot save themselves, and they openly, readily say, Jesus, save me. We start camp tonight at His Hill. And by God's goodness, um, we'll have over 900 kids with us this summer, and, um, and without putting any strong emphasis on evangelism, per se. Our goal in, in camp is to lead all kids to Christ, whether they are saved or not, because all people need to be led to Jesus. Christians need to be led to Jesus. And so I've always told our, our camp staff that we don't want to spend the whole week targeting the minority that are not yet Christians, and then that those who are Christians just tune you out because they've heard it before. So we really want to, want to preach Christ to the Christians. And the kids that don't know Jesus are going, I want what you're talking about. And it's amazing. And so without having you know, a strong evangelistic emphasis, there is, is seldom a kid that I would say leaves camp not knowing Christ. And we literally see Easily 200 kids a summer come to Christ. Amazing. By God's goodness. But we should expect that. Because when a child is in a 
welcoming, loving, safe environment, and he's hearing about the one who loves him and gave himself for him, it is a natural thing to see a child readily place his faith in Christ. So if you're a Christian, it's because at some point in your life, you were childlike enough to receive a free gift that you knew that you did not deserve. And that's why you were saved. So then Jesus continues, in the same way that you were saved by humility, by placing your faith in another, recognizing your need that you could not save yourself, in the same way we are to live. We enter into life through humility by placing our faith in Christ, and we continue in humility. So then he says, whoever, verse 4, then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So as I thought about that, it made me think, well, probably then, when we get to heaven and the Lord is handing out rewards, it may very well be that the people who get the greatest rewards will be the people, some people that we have never, ever heard about because they were so humble they weren't seeking any public recognition. But then I thought about Moses. We all know about Moses, and we're told that he was the most humble man alive in his day. And he actually had to write that down <laughs> because that's in one of the books that he wrote. So he probably lost his humility as soon as he had to write that down. God, is, God told him, write it down. You're the most humble man alive in your day. Wow. So there, being well-known does not necessarily rob people of their humility. Proverbs tells us that a man is tested by the praise given to him. And it's one of the, one of the greatest um, tests that a person can go through is the test of being praised. And in fact, for many people, it does go to their head and they lose what humility they had. But not everybody. So it's not, we're not able to tell in this life necessarily who the most humble are because we can't look into another person's heart. And if you think you're humble, I got news for you. <laughs> That's the antithesis of humility. A humble person is not one who's down on themselves, who beat themselves up all the time, who, who can't take a compliment. They, oh, it can't be true. A humble person is not a person who thinks badly of himself. As I read one person say, it's a person who just doesn't think of himself. He's not the focus of his attention all the time. Greatness in heaven is tied to humility. There is no greater person who has ever lived than the one who is also the most humble person who has ever lived, and that is Jesus Christ. He humbled himself like no person has ever humbled himself. Philippians chapter 2. Though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. No one ever lowered himself like Jesus did. And no one has ever been more exalted. He has been given a name above every other name 
and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. With great humility comes great honor before God, not before the world. The world despises humility. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, a humble child. You receive that child, value that child, you're receiving and valuing Jesus. That should tell us something about children's ministry. It is a significant, significant thing. Patsy has told me many times that she had one Sunday school teacher that followed her, you know, through, throughout her grade school years and continued to pray for Patsy all through this lady's life. What an amazing thing. And she, her entire life, just taught grade school children. The amount of impact that a person like that can have is incalculable. We should never despise the day of small things, Scripture says. It is so significant to invest our lives in children, to reach them while they're young, teach them of the love of God and of the value they have before Him. In doing so, you are honoring Christ Himself. But I want to add, and I think this is very, very important in this chapter to understand, Jesus is not, again, talking simply about children, but He's talking about adults who are childlike. And so there's this woven together here, this tapestry of the one hand, he's talking about kids. But on the other hand, he's talking about adults who are childlike in their faith. And we have to read it that way, especially as we go into these next verses. Go in verse 6, these little ones. Verse 10, these little ones. Verse 11, these little ones. And so all the way through here, this is the connecting theme. It's being like children, little in our own eyes. Like John the Baptist, who said, I'm not worthy to untie the thongs of his sandal. I must decrease. He must increase. That's being little in your own eyes. Whoever causes one of these little ones, whether that's a child or whether it's an adult who is childlike, who is humble, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. I believe this is a bit of hyperbole here, that Jesus would use that on many occasions. He's, he's, he's dramatizing the point here. He's exaggerating the point, as it were. He's not saying this is unimportant, but he's trying to get the point across to us. Children and childlikeness is important. And when you move a person away from childlikeness, it is a huge deal. As parents, we all know how valuable and, and, and virtuous innocence is. Ignorance is not a virtue, but innocence is. Throughout the epistles, we find Paul making statements like being um, innocent in regard to what is evil. But he never says that we should be ignorant of what is evil. And so as parents, we have to find that balance, that tension of how do you educate your children without robbing them of their innocence? And it's very difficult to do. 
And sometimes we, don't, we aren't careful enough about that, and it may not be what we do, but it may be what we allow somebody else to do. Somebody else can come through the gate into our, in our kids' lives, and they rob them of their innocence. And innocence lost can never be regained. Never regained. And when we rob a child of his innocence, Scripture says, better that you were never even born. That's pretty serious. Could that apply to an adult who is childlike? I think yes. I think what Jesus is saying, this is, I'm not just talking about children. Jesus is saying, I'm talking about adults who have a childlike faith in Christ. Do other adults rob them of that? Cause them to stumble? You better believe it. And now he goes into that a little more, a little more detail, verse 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. What is the world bent on doing? Robbing children of their innocence. Amen? And if there was ever a time when that is true, it is true today where children are being taught all manners of things that should never be mentioned to a child. And the schools, for one, in many cases, doing everything they can to make sure the parents don't hear about how they're robbing children of their innocence. It is evil, pure evil. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that they come and now get this, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Boy, that gets me. Because as parents, we may be innocent of causing our children to stumble. We didn't rob them of their innocence. But at the same time, you can be guilty of allowing a stumbling block to come into their life. Woe to the one through whom the stumbling block comes. We give our children phones too soon. We give them access to internet too soon. We allow them to watch movies that they shouldn't see too soon. And we aren't the one causing our child to stumble, but we've allowed the stumbling blocks to come into their life. Jesus says, woe to that man, that mom, that dad that allows the stumbling blocks to come in. And now in verse 8, to me, Jesus is giving here a characteristic of childlikeness, one manifestation of humility. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the hell of fire. Body, our bodies, our physical bodies don't cause us to sin. They are instruments of sin. We know that from Romans chapter 6. 
but they are not the cause of sin. We know that from Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus said, it is out of the heart that these things proceed. It's not my body that makes me sin. And as you've heard me say before, if chopping off body parts made you sin less, then short people sin less than tall people because we have smaller bodies. That's why I'm so righteous. <laughs> and humble. And humble, <laughs> yes. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. But we know that's not true. Though in heaven we will all be five, six, and under. <laughs> it's not our bodies that make us sin. Everybody listening to Jesus would have understood what he was saying. The point is simply, if it were your hand causing you to sin, sin is so serious that you ought to be willing to cut your hand off if that's what it takes to stop sinning. It's not going to make you stop sinning to cut your hand off or to pluck out your eye. But if that was the problem and that was the only solution, do it. And you know what? A child would. A humble person would. They would just go, I'm, I've seen this with kids. I mean, it's just a beautiful thing about a child. You just go, this isn't good for you. Okay. See, children tend to be very black and white. Children are more apt to say when they fa are faced with something that's not right, and they will just say, that's not right. This isn't good. And as you lose your childlikeness, you stop saying that. Now you start saying, well, what's wrong with it? And you've lost your humility. You've lost your childlikeness. Children don't ask the question, what's wrong with it? Unless they are losing their childlikeness. Children, when they're faced with what is evil, they say, this isn't good. I had a dad one time, heard me speak on this, and he came up to me and he said, that's what happened to my kids when they were at his hill. And I go, what are you talking about? And he says, they came home and, and I'd be watching something on TV and they'd be going, that's not good, Dad. That's not good. And he goes, that happened at Bible school. They became childlike again. You can lose childlikeness, and you can come back into childlikeness. And if we've lost, if the, if the big question we're asking in life is, what's wrong with it? We've lost our childlikeness. That is not the question of a child. Say, so, well, the world is just not that cut and dry. The world's just not that simple. You're right. The world's a complicated place. But God is simple. And God is black and white. The only reason there are ethical dilemmas is because we don't fully know God. God has never seen an ethical dilemma. Right? He is never in a quandary. He's never uncertain. He doesn't know what. There's never a time when God doesn't know exactly the right thing to do in any given situation. He never faces a quandary, an ethical dilemma. He never has seen a gray. 
Everything for God is right or wrong, good or evil, black and white. It's, it is a childlike thing. It is a humble thing to call evil, evil, and good, good. That is a position of humility. This is who God is. Children are this way. And a childlike adult will become not more rigid, but he will become more definite, more clear, more certain about what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. Because he's growing in his knowledge of God. And we should cherish that about people. We should encourage that with people. It is not a virtuous, a virtue to walk through life uncertain, unwilling, unable to, to state anything with conviction. But the smarter we get, the less certain we become the less black and white. And one aspect of humility is being willing to call evil, evil, and good, good, and deal with it accordingly. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now that starts to hit home for me. Because when we come across adults not children, but adults who have this quality about their lives that they're black and white. We can despise them because it makes us uncomfortable. And they can be so simplistic and so certain and so uncompromising. And we're going, what is your problem? Grow up. It's not like that. And we are despising that attribute of humility that sees evil as evil and good as good and calls it what it is. Do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. If I'm handling this passage correctly, this is not talking about children having guardian angels. This is talking about any person who is childlike having angelic representation in heaven. It again speaks to the value God places on humility and this particular aspect of humility that we're willing to see things as God sees them and call them as God calls them. I appreciated the wedding that we Patsy and I were at last night. Um, the, the father of the groom was the officiant, and, and he made a couple of statements in there. I mean, and he, you know, they're great. You know, he says, marriage is not between two women. Marriage is not between two men. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Why should that be controversial? But in today, some people can't even define what a woman is or define what a man is. Are you kidding me? Do children have any trouble defining the difference between a boy and a girl saying, that's a girl, that's a boy? But adults 
with all their university education, can't begin to tell you what a man or a woman is. That is not the way of God. God is clear and simple and certain because this is the nature of truth, and God is truth. Don't despise it. We will be, if you are this way, you will be despised by the world. And this is why Christians are so often despised, because we are so simple and clear about the truth. And it drives the world crazy. We should expect it. Childlike people are often despised. It's my hope that it not be true within the church that we not despise one another because of this simplicity, this clarity, this certainty on what is true. God's angels are representing these people, bearing witness of these people in heaven. Do all children have a guardian angel? I don't know. If they do, this would be the verse that says they do. But my inclination would be, if children have a guardian angel, then all people have a guardian angel based on this verse. But we don't know. Verse 12. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, gone astray from what? From the shepherd. What is the nature of the shepherd? He is humble. He is truth. He is simple. He is clear. He is certain. This is not talking about a person who is lost. This person is a sheep straying from the shepherd. This is a Christian moving away. Moving away from what? This particular aspect of childlikeness. And it happens with all of us. We are all as sheep who have gone astray. And every one of us, is tempted to start thinking like the world thinks, to not be clear on things we ought to be clear about, certain on things we ought to be certain about, and we are departing from Jesus. And Jesus will leave the 99 to go and bring back that straying sheep. Bring back to what? To that place of childlikeness. This is a big deal. You can't enter heaven without being childlike. Your position in heaven will be based on being childlike. You have an angel in heaven that is making sure that you are living childlike. And if you depart from childlikeness, Jesus is searching after you to bring you back. As that dad said happened to his two kids in Bible school. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and and go search for the one that is straying. And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 who have not gone astray. Does this mean that God doesn't rejoice over one that gets saved? No. I believe God does rejoice, absolutely rejoices over every person that gets saved. But this is not about salvation. This is about one who is saved, who is straying, straying, from childlikeness. Look at verse 14. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Perish. In the context here, 
It's to lose that childlike heart. There's a time when a child is no longer a child. Sometimes that's, there's a good part of that. Now he's a man. Now he's a woman. We see that. I love seeing that. I, I feel that, that we see that so often in Bible school from the time they come in to the time that they leave. We go, something happened this year. That's a man. That's a woman. And they came in as a boy or as a girl. That's a good thing. But to lose that childlike disposition, to lose childishness, that's a good thing. But to lose childlikeness is not a good thing. The child is gone. The child is gone. And it is not the will of our Father who is in heaven that any person loses that childlikeness. It's not his will. Clearly, it also would tell us it's not God's will for children to die. His heart is certainly greater than our hearts. And I've never met a parent who rejoiced in seeing children die. Those funerals are always much more grievous than the, children of, than the funerals of an adult. There is some extra grief that comes when a child dies. How much more our father does not want any child to perish. But again, the, the parallel here is we understand the grief of seeing a child die. God is applying that to seeing one who has placed his faith in Christ to lose that childlikeness that he once had. Maybe he loses his faith altogether. There's a reason that seminaries are often called cemeteries, because so many of those men and women lose their faith while they're in seminary. I remember Dr. John Walford, who was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary still when I was there. Godly man, humble man. I appreciated him greatly. But while I was there, they, did a, a, they had to do a 10-year accreditation review, massive review. And it was published in hardbound um, volumes, two volumes of 500 pages each or something. And I, they were to be made available to the students, and so I checked them out and did my best to, to peruse them. And Dr. Walbert, because word was getting out what the main, one of the main criticisms of the accreditation review was of the seminary, word had kind of gotten out, and Dr. Walbert felt the need to address it. And it was simply that so many of the graduates had said, I lost my faith. I was never encouraged in my personal walk with Jesus, and my heart got cold toward Christ while I was in seminary. And he addressed that, Dr. Walbert did in one of the chapels. Very sobering time for him. And he said something to the effect, he says, I have wrongly assumed that men coming to seminary at this stage in their life 
did not need to be encouraged in a personal relationship with Christ, that they already had that in place. Huge assumption and a wrong assumption. Because just as children need to be daily encouraged, doesn't the scripture tell us to consider how to stimulate one another daily to good works, to encourage one another daily? Childlikeness can be lost, particularly if it's not encouraged in the body of Christ. The body of Christ ought to be a place where we encourage people to remain simple. And when there's lots of questions they can't answer, just saying, it's okay. You don't need to know all the answers right now. Isn't that what we would say to a child? It's okay. You don't have to have it all figured out right now. Just rest. Just rest. Doesn't mean you park your brain, but you can rest. Just keep coming back to Jesus. Stay in his word. And as you stay in the word and keep coming back to Jesus and giving him all those questions, he will answer them if they need to be answered. And if they don't need to be answered, you can trust him with that. But keep coming back to the word. Keep coming back to Jesus. See, we're encouraging people to childlikeness when we do that. We're not saying bad questions. Don't answer those. Don't ask those questions. We're just saying it's okay to not have all the answers, but you can have this answer. Jesus knows. And your trust in him is not misplaced. Don't let all these questions take you away from that simple and pure devotion to Christ. That is a loss beyond words. You would hope that no matter how long a Christian lives, that his heart stays simple and true to Jesus, that he listens to Jesus, he is taught by Jesus, he receives the correction of Jesus, that he loves Jesus and knows Jesus' love for him, that that never goes away. Young person comes to Christ and they're all excited. And sometimes old people say, you'll get over it. What a terrible thing to even imply. That's something that we would want to see encouraged. It encourages and challenges my heart when I see people older than me that are actively sharing their faith and praying for people and wanting them to hear of Christ. One of our students said that when they were, you know, the grandparents were in for our closing program, and they, every, he says, my, she's, every time my grandfather goes out to dinner anywhere, he tells the waiter, we're about to pray. Hope you're okay with that. But while we're praying, is there anything we can pray for you about? And he just uses every opportunity at his elderly age to be sharing Christ with people. That challenges me. I'm so grateful he hasn't lost what he had when he first came to Christ. That pure and simple devotion to Jesus. It'll make you black and white. It'll make you certain when people are uncomfortable with certainty. It'll cause you to be despised by men, 
but God loves it. And the angels in heaven are standing there for you to maintain that childlikeness. We're not going to go through the rest of the chapter. Not this morning. Next week we'll come to the rest of it. But this is the first, I believe, of three characteristics of humility or childlikeness. And that is simplicity in regard to good and evil. That we're willing to see things as God sees them and to accept it and to stand on it. I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for your immense grace to us. Thank you, God, that you're not requiring effort. You're not requiring um, intelligence. You simply want us to trust you. It is in that simple faith in Christ that we are saved. And that's just how you want us to live, in simple faith in Christ. Thank you for the minds that you've given us. But Lord, I pray that our intellects never supersede that humble, childlike faith and confidence in Christ. That we not allow the questions and uncertainties of the world to cloud what we know to be true. And that we not despise one another, Lord Jesus, as you keep us in that place of childlikeness and you pursue us to bring us back to that place. That we would affirm this with one another and encourage it. We need it, God, because all who are childlike will be despised by this world. I do pray, O oh God, we would know your affirming heart for us as we humble ourselves and seek to, to know you in truth and to make you known in truth. In Christ's name, amen. As we have each time, I'd like to begin by reading it's Psalm 8. It has nine verses. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you've ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we are grateful to be able to gather again today, Lord, to come around your word, Lord. We, we pray that we would see you. Pray, we pray that we would know you, Lord, and come to understand you. 
we thank you that you've given us great depths to uh, search, Lord, and that uh, when we do, that we find you. Lord, we love you, and we pray that this lesson and our discussion is about you and you alone. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and in him we pray this morning. Amen. So last week, uh, we, we've, we did finish one biblical theme that we determined uh, that was reflected in the psalm, and then we moved on to the next verse, Psalm 8, verse 2. We've, we've already been here. From the lips of children and infants, you've ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And we saw that this is the first time this psalm was quoted in the New Testament, and it's quoted by Jesus Christ. And he uses it in a very particular way. And it, Ultimately, it's beginning to show us a principle that God has regarding things that we consider insignificant or unsophisticated or not what the world holds up as uh, great. And he uses children, and praise came from the mouths of these children. And in doing so, it was to silence the enemy, who were the religious rulers who were there at the time, the, the ones who had the wisdom, really, of the world. And so... We moved on to try to begin to follow this concept, this principle that God has in his word. And uh, we found Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. Uh, Charlie started off his sermon with this same section. And, and in it, he pointed out that uh, three of the disciples, John and James and Peter, had just seen Christ transfigured. They'd just seen him in his glory. And... Uh, they could have been a little puffed up. I wouldn't doubt it because their question seems to uh, point to such. They asked Christ who would be the greatest in his kingdom. But I think he throws them a curveball here. He brings them a living object lesson. A child is brought before them. And when he talks to them, he says, unless you change and become like children, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. I think this was totally unexpected on their part. Okay, so here is then another scripture uh, regarding childlike faith. Let me just set the stage. After many of the wise and learned people in the major cities of Galilee failed to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, he lifts this prayer to the Father. In it, you can note there's not even a, a note of bitterness, only Jesus' assurance that nothing can frustrate God's purpose. These people had been given every chance to welcome Jesus, but they had refused to submit. Let me just read these verses from Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So, you know, we really shouldn't think that God is just arbitrarily withholding, revealing Himself from one person and to another. That's not it. It's our attitudes and our self-estimations. This is what clouds his light. And when anyone willfully and repeatedly refuses 
God's light, He can withhold further light from them. While the intelligentsia, that is the highly esteemed, self-important and so-called wise of the world, refuse to believe, God informs us that He has chosen to reveal Himself to humble hearts like those of little children, that He has chosen those who see their own need for a Savior and humbly seek Him. You know, salvation is free to all who believe, but make no mistake, we will not make some grand entrance into heaven singing, I did it my way. We must come God's way. I believe that this is a major point and one that Jesus was making in the parable of the wedding feast, or as I like to think of it, the parable of the wedding garment. This is found in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. If you'll remember, the king in the parable had planned a wedding and feast for his son. Those who were invited at the first refused and even responded viciously. They were subsequently dealt with. The king then opened up the invitation to all. So I'll just pick it up in verse 8 of Matthew 22. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. This was an indication that he refused to come the king's way. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. I believe it's to our benefit to spend some time considering the importance of this truth before moving on. In the previous slide, remember, I mentioned that in response to his disciples' question regarding greatness in the kingdom, Jesus gave them a living object lesson. He brought a child in before them and told the disciples, the disciples that to enter the kingdom of heaven, they must change and become like little children. He said that to be the greatest in the kingdom required taking the lowly position of a child. So now let me ask some questions. What did Jesus mean? What is this, what is this lowly position that he's talking about? Any thoughts? Paul says, complete humbling of themselves. This is absolutely correct. Complete humbling of themselves. Humility. And I would add that this characteristic, humility, humbleness, is very important. It's extremely important to God. Do you think so as well? Now let me ask this. What is the complete opposite? That is the polar opposite of humbleness, of humility. Pride, unanimously, pride. Pride, it's very noteworthy. Right now I'm thinking about Pride Month. 
bureaucrats <laughs> and politicians have now non-consensually designated the entire month of June to celebrate pride. You know, it'd be more appropriate to call it shame month. We're living in times of not so subtle cultural corrosion. I mean, you can almost feel the sand shifting underneath your feet, can't you? Any comments there? Okay, you'll have, you'll have your chance, Jay. Here's another question. How did God describe His original creation when it was completed? Good, very good. He used both terms. He held very good back for the very last day, the sixth day. Now, I don't mean to be irreverent, but do you find it interesting that God did not use the term perfect in His assessment? I'm not trying to imply that God's original creation wasn't perfect. On the contrary, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 and 4 state, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and just is He. God's original creation was perfect, especially in the sense that it was everything and exactly what it was meant and needed to be. It was pristine. It was innocent. It was free of death, but not free from the potential for death. Of note, I was able to find one part of God's original creation to which he attached the terms perfect and perfection. You might want to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 28. This chapter of Ezekiel begins with God's rebuke of the leader or the prince of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, uh, and that is in verses 1 through 10. The ruler of Tyre at that time was a guy named Itobaal. Ito Ito He's denounced in those verses because of his arrogance and extreme pride. But when verse 11 begins, God's lamentation and judgment shift toward another, namely the king of Tyre, who apparently is the influence behind the prince of Tyre. Now, most agree that the king here is really Satan. This is because of the description that follows. So I'll begin reading at verse 11 of chapter 28 of Ezekiel. This is from the ESV translation. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet, or the seal, of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Some translations say the anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created 
till unrighteousness was found in you. Unrighteousness, iniquity, sin. In the abundance, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. What was his sin? The next verse will tell us. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. You know, the point here in reading this passage is just to emphasize something about pride as opposed to humbleness and humility. Sometimes pride and arrogance are downplayed as petty or less significant sins. I'm as guilty of doing this as anyone, probably because these are my sins. But God's Word gives us clear indication that He views pride with extreme displeasure. Listen to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. God hates it. Now, as I interpret this passage, it was the sin of pride that was able to take the only thing referred to in Scripture as perfection in God's creation and destroy it. Perfection was turned into perversion and every kind of evil. In fact, it seems that every other sin proceeded from pride. Psalm 10.4 states that the proud are so consumed with themselves that their thoughts are far from God. Far from God. Listen, Psalm 10 verse 4. In his pride, the wicked does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Another way to look at pride is that it is the worst form of plagiarism. Pride's taking credit for something that God has accomplished. Consider this. Uh, this is the NIV translation. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 7 states, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? This is why the person who's humble, whose faith is childlike, when they come to trust God, they are as far from pride as possible. These are the people to whom God chooses to reveal Himself. Now, ordinarily, when a grandparent wants to show you pictures or tell you about their grandchild, my advice for you is to find the nearest exit. That being said, I'd like to tell you about my seven-year-old grandson, Jack. Okay. Jack, now, you're, you're, you're too far up front. This is because I was recently given a living object lesson on the topic that we've been talking about. This occurred two Sundays ago when he wanted to be baptized. Jack wanted to be baptized. I'd been thinking about and studying God's Word on this idea that He requires humility, which precludes any semblance of pride. And honestly, I could throw a million words at this principle and still not come to the basic, simple essence of what it means. So for me, hearing what I'm about to play made the greater impression. So just bear with me. It's only about a minute long. Let me just lay out the scene for you. Jack is my grandson. Uh, my son, John, and, 
and my daughter-in-law, Krista, or his parents, and they're, they're standing up in front of their congregation at their church. There are about five people who are going to be baptized that day, and they're each given the microphone and a chance you know, to give their explanation for why they want to proclaim their trust in Jesus. John, uh, Jack, uh, Krista has just talked, and now John's got the mic, and he's going to ask a few questions. He's going to ask four questions to Jack for clarity regarding the understanding of what he's doing. And I apologize, the sound quality is not good. I was sitting out in the audience, and uh, there's a bit of chatter. It's a, little, it's a little annoying, but I think for the most part you can hear it. The thing is I want you to especially just focus on uh, Jack's responses to the questions. Here we go. Okay, the only thing that you miss in the video is that when everyone laughs, when he says how much forgiveness he, lead, he needs, his face doesn't, his expression doesn't change a bit. He is humble. <laughs> and you just, you know, that's what I needed to, to see and to hear. So this leads then to biblical theme number two that I think is reflected in the psalm that we're studying. God favors and reveals himself to children and to those with childlike faith. Humble, unpretentious faith. In other words, God chooses the weak, the foolish, the things of the world, these things to shame the wise and the proud. You know, the gospel of our salvation, it's indeed plain enough that a child can understand it. In fact, it really takes an adult to make it complicated, doesn't it? And so it is that with childlike faith, a person will believe the gospel, but a proud man will reject it and a fool will deny it. Our psalm, Psalm 8, is reflective of this great biblical truth, and it's found throughout the scriptures. God's wisdom is to reveal himself to the humble of heart, to the lowly and the weak. And in doing so, he confounds the thinking of the world that measures greatness by external qualities like status and wealth, intellect, beauty, celebrity. God's wisdom, as opposed to worldly wisdom, is so important that I'm still not ready to leave the topic here. I would like to spend just a, a bit more time considering the supernatural principle. Paul addresses this principle directly when he writes about it in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, uh, verses 20 through 31. And we'll see in verse 31, he even tells us God's purpose. 
So I've specifically chosen the amplified version of the Bible here because of its parenthetical descriptions. These help me to understand the rhetorical nature of this passage. So I'll just read the verses, and after I finish the entire passage, I'd like to hear whatever your comments and insights are that you'd like to share. So 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 20. Where is the wise man, the philosopher? Where is the scribe, the scholar? Where is the debater, logician, or the orator of this age? Has God not exposed the foolishness of this world's wisdom? For since the world, through all its earthly wisdom, failed to recognize God, God in His wisdom was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached regarding salvation to save those who believe in Christ and welcome Him as Savior. For Jews demand signs, attesting miracles, and Greeks pursue worldly wisdom and philosophy. But we preach Christ crucified, a message which is to Jews a stumbling block that provokes their opposition, and to Gentiles foolishness, just utter nonsense. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is because the foolishness of God is not foolishness at all and is wiser than men, far beyond human comprehension. And the weakness of, of God is stronger than man, far beyond the limits of human effort. Just look at your own calling, believers. Not many of you were considered wise according to human standards. Not many powerful or influential. Not many of high and noble birth. But God has selected for His purpose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, revealing their ignorance. And God has selected for His purpose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, revealing their frailty. God has selected for His purpose the insignificant, base things of the world and the things that are despised and treated with contempt, even the things that are nothing, so that He might reduce to nothing the things that are, so that no one may be able to boast in the presence of God but it is from Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, revealing His plan of salvation and righteousness, making us acceptable to God, and sanctification, making us holy and setting us apart for God, and redemption, providing our ransom from the penalty for sin. So then, as it is written in the Scriptures, He who boasts and glories, let him boast and glory in the Lord. I mean, this is so antithetical to anything that man or woman could devise or think of. It's so counterculture and so unsophisticated that few will ever accept it. Any comments? Right. It's too simple. You know, Rob, you pointed out last week about Dawkins. He had, it's not an intellectual problem that blocks us. I mean, God's not above our thoughts. I mean, He is above our thoughts, but we're, our thoughts are not above God. You know, it, it, it's basically what's in here that blocks the way, what we think. You know, when we're, we take, we're taken in by the world and its wisdom. Think about this example using worldly wisdom, for instance, for instance, selecting a team for some endeavor, would likely involve criteria like a person's abilities, their status, and particularly a history of success. 
but the world's measure of success is different from God's. Consider what's required to become a believer. When we come to Christ, we're essentially on His team. We come by His grace through our faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it well, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourself, grace that you have been saved. It is the gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast, so that no one can boast. This is the same purpose that we see at the end of 1 Corinthians in the, in the uh, verse 31. No one can boast. When God chooses to reveal himself, it is to the humble, the weak, the least, the insignificant. These are the ones that the world considers the least successful and the least likely to be usable. And guess what? God agrees totally with them. But these are also the least likely to have their vision clouded by their own goodness, righteousness, and self-importance. That is their pride. I believe that God's plan of salvation is so simple that it surprises the so-called learned, and they often miss it, just like you were talking about, Mary. Salvation does not come by mankind's ability to reason it using worldly standards so that the wise of this world are confounded. And for the saved believer, we are left with nothing about ourselves to boast in. That's the understanding that pleases God. Now, Paul tells us in verse 31 that he's quoting from Scripture. He's chosen a text from the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, the prophet gives the explanation for what boasting in the Lord means. So let's go there. This is, this is from the ESV. So here, Jeremiah will tell us what boasting in the Lord is. And the context of these two verses is that the southern kingdom, that is Judah, stands on the precipice of monumental destruction by the rapidly approaching Babylonian armies. The people had trusted in their wisdom, their strength, and their wealth, and I would add in their idols. And they were now facing devastation and 70 years of captivity. For all intents and purposes, their situation was beyond despair and hopelessness. That is when God gives them this message from his own mouth through the prophet. It was totally relevant for those Jews, and it is just as relevant for us today. Let me read Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So boasting in the Lord, boasting in God, is truly boasting of and about God. Unfortunately, there are many false teachers out there that take this phrase, boasting in God, and they twist, twist it to meet uh, self-serving materialistic agendas. I've heard it used in the word faith movement, you know, name it and claim it, or otherwise prosperity gospels will use it so that a person may think that they're living their best life now when they accumulate material wealth. How sad that is. Even so, God says it is okay to boast, only not in these fleeting, fading, and unsatisfying 
attractions. We're to boast in God Himself, in Jesus Christ. Boast that we understand and know Him. What does that mean? How can we know and understand God? How difficult that is to put into words. I can say uh, that I do firmly believe there is no substitute for a healthy dose of the Holy Spirit to start with. Right, staying in the Word. That should be mixed, as Stella said, with personal time in God's Word and in prayer and conversations with the Lord. And what we learn, we have to seek to obey. I would add that gathering in fellowship with other believers is like iron sharpening iron. We get to hear and tell of what great things God is doing in each of our lives. Further, I will say this. Every time we hear a Holy Spirit-inspired teaching coming from that pulpit next door, from men like Charlie and Kelly and John Forrest and Connor Patterson, we should be praising God that He has so richly blessed this local church, that we have teachers who so love the Word of God, whose messages instruct us in the things that delight the Lord. We are told of God's loving kindness, of His justice and His judgment, and of His righteousness. These men are also teaching us how to boast in glory in the Lord by giving us deeper understanding and knowledge of God. And we should not take that for granted. Any comments? Amen. Amen. <laughs> okay. Now, before proceeding to another biblical theme that's reflected in 8. I just wanted to pull out these verses uh, from Psalm 8. Beginning, uh, we're going to look at uh, verse 3 and 4. Let's start with verse 3. It says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. I believe, you know, creation is just indescribable. Who hasn't? wondered at the immensity of space in the universe when looking up at the sky on a clear night. You know, shortly after moving here from Corpus Christi, I remember being very much impressed with the clarity and sharpness of the evening sky and just its magnitude. I could see so much more detail than when I was living on the coast. Staring at the heavens truly causes a person to wonder and marvel at the unimaginable greatness of God. How big is our God? William McDonald uh, has written a commentary, the B Believer's Bible Commentary, and uh, with regard to this verse here, verse 3 of Psalm 8, he says, No branch of science proclaims God's greatness and man's insignificance more eloquently than astronomy. The simple fact that distances must be reckoned in light years, that is the distance that light travels in a year, illustrates the point. Light travels 186,000 miles per second. Is that right, Jim? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's confirmed. And there are 3.1, excuse me, there are 31.5 million seconds in a year, so light travels roughly 6 trillion miles in a year, six trillion miles. Yet there are some stars that are billions, billions of light years from Earth. No wonder we call such computation astronomical. Also, I found a website 
uh, called universetoday.com, and it is filled with just fascinating information about astronomy. I am a total novice, I admit it, when it comes to space and the universe. But I gather a few bits of information to give me a better idea of the vastness of space and the scale that we're talking about. For instance, did you know, not you, Jim, the rest of us, that our sun contains 99.9% of all the matter in our solar system? In fact, 1.3 million Earths could fit inside of the sun. Yet the sun is nowhere near to being the largest of stars. It ranks as a G-sized star on this scale. That's our sun. Stars have been discovered that are over 2,000 times bigger than the sun. Our solar system is contained in the galaxy known as the Milky Way. So far, there are over 170 billion galaxies that have been discovered. Each galaxy contains hundreds of billions of stars of varying sizes and brightness. And all of this is mind-boggling. But, but consider this. What did you have, Porter? <laughs> and the Lord named them all. God tells us in his word that he's counted each star and given them all names. Psalm 146, verses 2 through 5. Let me read. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls each them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Those are truthful words. You know, when, when David wrote Psalm 8, you have to remember he had no benefit of elaborate telescopes or centuries of accumulated knowledge on astronomy. All I can say is there has to be something radically wrong with, wrong with a person's thinking if the universe doesn't say something to them about a creator. So then, continuing in this somewhat scientific mode, let's move in the other direction. What about man? Who, by comparison to the vast universe, is seemingly insignificant? I would like all of you to turn in your Bibles right now to, ver to Psalm 139 and verse 14 so we can each read it. Psalm 139, verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul, my soul knows it very well. Now, when you get to the end of the verse, I would like you to focus on the period that is there at the end of the sentence. And I want you to think about this. Everybody in this room began life as a single cell smaller than that period. Yet God placed within that tiny cell all of the information, all of the genetic blueprint necessary to construct our entire bodies. That is what DNA does. From the very beginning of conception, we received half of our genetic information from each of our parents. And it was all there in the first cell. DNA is amazing inexplicably amazing. It directs and causes our cells to form molecules, proteins, 
with myriads of functions needed for all the processes of life and growth. These are functions and processes like, I'm going to just name eight. There are more than you can think of. Structural, they help us to form the cells and the organs of our body through collagen and keratin. Enzymatic proteins, causing the promotion of reactions in the cells that bring about needed biological processes. They're involved in transporting or carrying specific molecules into and out of our cells as we need them. They're involved in storage of nu nutrients for times when we would need them. They're involved in contraction, muscles, actin, myosin, movement. They're very important in immunological defense. Antibodies are proteins. And they're regulatory. When you think of a hormone or neurotransmitters, those are proteins. And they can be as toxic as well. They can provide the organism with a degree of protection, just like venom does for a snake. DNA, listen to this, is believed to be the densest information storage system known to exist. Consider that the information contained in just a pinhead's volume of DNA would fill a stack of books stretching from Earth to Moon 500 times. And you have to ask yourself, who put that information there? I hope this works. And I'm not all that uh, having great luck with technology, but we'll try. Now, I'd like for us to watch them, this short video. It's about two and a half minutes, and we'll be through. Uh, and it's just to get an idea of the mechanics, the machinery, the mechanism going on inside of a human cell. And this is all under the direction of DNA. And I'll admit that I was a bit reluctant to show this. I don't want this to be overwhelming or too much technical information. We don't need to know that. This isn't meant to be a science lesson, but to show us the complexity and design that God put in us. A point of showing this is for us to appreciate what's going on inside every so-called simple cell in our body. Now, be advised, this is an animated video. It's illustrative of what is actually happening, happening inside our cells. It's not make-believe. And don't let the narrator's English accent distract you either. Okay. I'm going to turn this down a little bit. And try it. Here is a cell, the basic unit of all living tissue. In most human cells, there is a structure called the nucleus. The nucleus contains the genome. In humans, the genome is split between 23 pairs of chromosomes. Each chromosome contains a long strand of DNA, tightly packaged around proteins called histones. Within the DNA are sections called genes. These genes contain the instructions for making proteins. When a gene is switched on, an enzyme called RNA polymerase attaches to the start of the gene. It moves along the DNA, making a strand of messenger RNA out of free bases in the nucleus. The DNA code determines the order in which the free bases are added to the messenger RNA. This process is called transcription. Before the messenger RNA can be used as a template for the production of proteins, it needs to be processed 